School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics. This week, we're taking on some of the paradoxes that punish all of us in the workplace, and especially women, the ones that stem from miscommunication. They fuel harmful misconceptions that work is not personal, that grown-ups don't take what happens at work personally, and that, as my grandmother used to tell me, work is a four-letter word for a reason. Thanks to a powerful and refreshing management philosophy explained by Kim Scott in her new book, Radical Candor, there is another way where, believe it or not, you can bring your whole self to work, cultivate a work environment where others do the same while actually producing both better results and happier people. Kim will be joining us to talk about what radical candor actually is, how we can embrace it as employees and managers, including how it can help women navigate some of the double standards that impact all of us at work. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. If you'd like to join in the conversation or have questions for Kim about things like addressing, addressing a frustration with your boss or navigating your performance review, you can give us a call. We'd really love to help you find your way. Our phones are open, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And for those of you who may actually be at work, listening online with your headphones in and you don't really want to call, you can write to us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We'd love to hear from you. And the awesome ladies in the booth today will give me your message and we'll take your question on the air that way. Um, So today we're going to be joined by Kim Scott. She's the co-founder and CEO of Candor Incorporated and author of Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. As the co-founder and CEO of Candor, Kim has also been a coach to the CEOs of little companies like Dropbox, Qualtrics, Twitter, several other giant tech companies. She was a member of the faculty at Apple University, where she designed and taught a class on optimal management. Before Apple, she was an unbelievably successful leader at Google, leading AdSense, YouTube, and double-click online sales and operations. Before that, she was at Google. Before working at Google, she was the co-founder and CEO of the collaboration startup Juice Software, and she led business development at Delta Three and Capital Thinking. She's worked at a, as a senior policy advisor at the FCC, managed a pediatric clinic in, clinic in Kosovo, started a diamond-cutting factory in Moscow, and worked as an analyst on the Soviet Companies Fund. She's also the author of three novels, Virtual Love, The House Husband, and The Measurement Problem. Um, clearly, one of these amazing women who you just can't believe how much she does, but also how much she understands and how much she's going to teach us today. Kim's earned growing fame in recent years with her vital new approach to effective management, this radical candor method, and it's been the subject of articles in such publications as the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, the New York Times, and Inc. Um, And she continually urges women to challenge directly and care personally and without self-abnegation, which is something that we're going to talk more about today. So with all that, we're thrilled to have Kim with us to talk about radical candor and what it means for women in leadership. So Kim, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you so much. It's a thrill to be here. (laughs) I feel the same way. So Kim, until I read your book, I thought of radical candor as this thing that in particular got my outspoken best friend in trouble all the time. <laughs> Would you please explain what radical candor is in, in the context that you talk about it and why it's actually helpful to relationships? Sure. So radical candor is the ability to challenge people directly 
in a way that simultaneously shows them that you care personally about them. And the reason why it's so important at work is, is most easily described if we think about what happens when you fail on one of those dimensions or, or another. So when you challenge directly but you fail to show that you care personally, that's obnoxious aggression. And there's a world of difference between radical candor and obnoxious aggression. However, the much more common mistake happens when you, when you do show somebody you care personally, and because you're so worried about being nice, you fail, and nice I mean in quotes, you fail to challenge directly. And when you fail to challenge directly, I call that ruinous empathy. And I think when you, when you think about those times that you have failed to tell somebody when you've seen a problem that they could have fixed if they had known about, you realize that you're not doing yourself or that other person or your relationship any favors to hold your peace. That's like a quadrant we could put friends don't let friends drive drunk in. Exactly. <laughs> it's a perfect analogy. And and then there's another one that you talk about, which is manipulative insincerity. Yes. Yeah, so when you fail on both dimensions, and we all do, I'm happy to tell stories about myself, my own hero's <laughs> journey to manipulative insincerity. But there are times, there are times in life and at work when we fail both to show that we care personally, and also we fail to challenge directly, where we just sort of retreat to our own corner. And, and that's actually, ironically, because we don't want to make any waves. Yes. Often it's because we don't want to make any waves or because somebody has told us that we've been a jerk. And we often get bad advice when we've been a jerk to, to back off our challenge. And that's not the right thing to do. The right thing to do, I believe, is, is I mean, back off your challenge if you're wrong about it, by all means. But if you don't think you're wrong, the thing to do is to show the person very clearly that the reason that you are challenging them is because you care about them. So when you talk about this as dimensions, I want to share something where we have a little bit of a limitation because this is radio and not television. Um, in the book, which I highly recommend, um, there's a, a simple little graph, a classic two-by-two two, yeah. um, that has four quadrants in it, with the upper right-hand quadrant being the ideal quadrant. And that's yeah. where radical candor lives. That's radical candor. When you both care personally, so if you imagine a vertical line, that's the care personally dimension. Now imagine a horizontal line, so you've got a plus sign, and that's care uh, that's challenged directly, the horizontal line. Mm -hmm. And so radical candor is in that all-positive sphere. Yes. And in the caring personally, but not challenging directly, is where ruinous empathy comes in. Exactly. So it's top of the line, but exactly. to the left. The upper left-hand quadrant. And then below the line, on both counts, on the left side is manipulative insincerity. The it's worst quadrants of all. Ironically, empty and really hurtful. And then on the right-hand side is obnoxious aggression. Exactly. Which, weirdly enough, can have some positive in that somebody's actually being challenging, but it's so obnoxious that it can't be effective. Yes, and, and, and often the obnoxious aggression just sort of triggers the, the fight-or-flight instinct. It triggers lizard brain. And it's really hard for somebody to listen to what you have to say when their lizard brain has gotten engaged. <laughs> Absolutely. So I want to use, there was a really great, very funny, simple um, story that you told in the book of kind of comparing this to how you would deal with an employee whose fly is down. Exactly. So if you think about, if you think about that, an employee, a friend, anybody, a stranger on the street, 
if, if somebody's fly is down and you walk up to them and, and you say privately, you kind of whisper, hey, your fly is down. If I were in your shoes, I'd want to know about it. I'm, that's why I'm telling you. Uh, then that's radical candor. If you point and yell, hey, yo, your fly is down. <laughs> so everybody over here, <laughs> that's kind of obnoxious aggression. And if you, if you just are so worried about embarrassing the person that you say nothing, that is ruinous empathy. And it's ruinous because 10 or 15 more people see them with their fly down. It's not really the kindest thing to do to that person. And then if you look at the person, notice the fly down, say nothing, and then whisper to the next 10 people, you see, yo, did you see so-and-so's fly is down? That would be manipulative insincerity. Right. So you can see where um, when you take it boil it down to something that simple, you can really see how these quadrants play out, except it becomes much harder in our day-to-day relationships and especially at work. Yes, absolutely. But one thing I've found really helpful is to imagine if, if I'm facing a really thorny problem that I have to tell somebody about, I just imagine that it's not this thorny problem. It's the fly down or spinach in the teeth or something with, that's less charged then it becomes easy to know what the right thing to do is. Okay. Now let's put that up against this notion of having your fly down. Yes, it it could reveal some personal things, but it's not really a deeply personal issue. It doesn't reflect your character. But the things that you're often going to give criticism about at work, Mm -hmm. um, whether you're going up or down in the hierarchical structure, um, it can feel personal. Yes, it absolutely can feel personal. And, and there's, this is really a tricky aspect to radical candor that I want to talk about. Because on the one hand, when you, uh, when you give praise or criticism, you don't want to praise or criticize about somebody's personality because it's really hard to change personality. And the best guidance, and I define guidance as praise and criticism, but if you want to think about it as feedback, that's also uh, another synonym for the same thing. The best guidance is really uh, going to help somebody fix something or help somebody do more of something, depending on whether it's praise or criticism. And so you shouldn't talk about personality. However, it's also true that even if you give somebody some feedback and you do a great job addressing the work or the behavior in such a way that they can address the work or the behavior, they might take it personally. And that's okay. We, We... spend more time at work than almost any other activity in our lives. And so it's natural. We care about our work. So it's natural when we screw it up that we take it personally or when we do something great that that feels wonderful at a very personal level. So I think one of the things I say in the book is just eliminate from your vocabulary the phrase, don't take it personally. It's natural to take it personally when you're bringing your whole self to work. And also, when you're making an effort as, say, the person giving the feedback Mm -hmm. to be present, to bring your whole self there, and to be compassionate. Exactly. To say don't take it personally actually is negating what they're feeling. Exactly. Exactly. It's sort of like it's sort of like the meatloaf song, isn't it? Don't be sad, right? <laughs> Two out of three ain't bad. I always sort of tear up when I hear that song. I always thought that was rotten too. Like, but don't expect me to love you, right? Yeah, I don't love you, but don't be sad about it. Like, what is that about? Uh, so, so, so it's 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 worse than than saying you know. 
If somebody's sad, say, I'm sorry you're sad. But don't say, don't be sad. You can't tell somebody else how to feel. Right. And in fact, um, I think it was Carl Rogers was the therapist who first put this into action as a way of helping deal with their own painful feelings is when you acknowledge that they have them, that has its own therapeutic value. Yes, absolutely. And I think one of, you know, one of the things that makes feedback so hard is your feelings about their feelings, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and if you try to make the feedback be about them and not how you feel about how they feel, it's going to go much better. And in the book, though, you do talk about ways to help yourself feel as good as you can going into these kinds of conversations so you can be fully present for them. Yes. Uh, so there's there's a few things that, that can help. The, the most obvious one is to get enough sleep and exercise and food. <laughs> Don't go into these conversations exhausted or, you know, hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Um, but uh, another thing that can really help uh, – that. Uh, one of the things I really believe in in the book, and I tried to make this book read like, like a book of short stories, not like a management book, because if you can think about a time in your life when you got feedback that really helped you, even if it stung a little bit in the moment, then it's much easier to go into the conversation with a real sense of compassion and, and, and to be very clear that you're telling this person this thing because you want to help them. And even if, you sh if, if you've made a mistake similar to the one you're now sharing with the other person, if you share the time that you made a mistake and how much you appreciated the person who told you about it, then it's, it's much more clear to that person that you're trying to be helpful and that you're saying whatever you're saying because you care about them, not because you're trying to kick them in the shins or prove that you're smarter or something like that. This issue of caring about the people who are working for you and working mm -hmm. with you permeates the book. Yes. I have to say it was one of the most refreshing and endearing things about it because with the title of Radical Candor, um, I think as you note through the book of, you know, Steve Jobs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet caring both about what you're doing together, about people's experience in that process was part of his world as much as it's part of the book. Yes. I mean, absolutely. Steve Jobs, I think, doesn't get enough credit for forming really strong relationships with the people who he worked with. Tim Cook offered him his liver, and Steve Jobs refused the sacrifice. I don't know how you explain that other than the word love. I don't yeah, think really, another on both of their parts. Yes, from both of them. Real love between these two these two people. When when Johnny Ives spoke at Steve's memorial service, it was very clear that Johnny really loved Steve and that Steve had really loved Johnny. And I think that that those strong relationships are on any team. You don't have to be you don't have to be <laughs> Steve Jobs, but between you and the people who you work directly with are what. That's what is going to help you do the best work of your lives and, and also, of course, form the best relationships of your lives. There's such a strong connection between your relationships at work and the quality of the work that you're able to do. Right, and then your happiness. Yeah. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Kim Scott, co-founder and CEO of Candor Incorporated and author of Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. If you have a question about what we're discussing, give us a call. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844 942 
800-848-7866. So coming back to Apple, and I want to talk about culture for a minute, because mm-hmm. one of the things that you make clear is that, you know, there's the way we function as individuals. We have our relationships with other individuals within a culture that's created that creates a bigger community. Mm-hmm. And then there's an impact that can ripple out from that. Yes. And, you know, Apple and Google are not only, you know, these huge, sexy Silicon Valley companies. Their ripple effect hits all of us. Yes. The, but, cult, the culture goes beyond the company to the whole society, doesn't it? Yes. And also the products, the things that they've given us have changed our lives. Mm-hmm. So those people are fascinating to us at their core. And you talk about some fundamental differences in their cultures, yet some similarities. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the way – here's my mental model for how culture gets created. At the, at the core – at both at both Apple and Google, I saw some individuals, and then those individuals, the leaders, the the founders of those companies, had very strong relationships with the people. You can't have a relationship with ten thousand, thirty thousand, eighty thousand people, but they had very strong relationships with their direct reports, and those relationships impacted their ability to create a culture of feedback to build really strong teams, really strong, stable, cohesive teams, and to achieve results collaboratively. And there's, a, there's sort of a reciprocal, a reciprocal relationship between the relationships and the ability to fulfill the responsibilities as a manager of feedback, team, and results. And from that emerges culture is sort of like the outer ring of the of the of the circle if you will of the wheel that moves you forward as a manager and i think that if i if i had if i had to describe it i would say that google they both were radically candid both google and apple are companies that have a, a profound belief in in the value of debate um, in, in the value of disagreeing with one another, but also in, in the value of treating each other with enormous respect. And I, I, I guess if I had to boil it down, I would say that Google tends to be radically candid with maybe, maybe a, a dash of ruinous empathy. And, <laughs> and uh, Apple tends to be radically candid with maybe a dash of obnoxious aggression. Okay. So their dashes each keep them on the positive side of one side of the line. Yes. And we all, all cultures and all people make mistakes. We are in, in every single one of the quadrants. So the way to use this radical candor framework is not to judge yourself. Not to judge people. Please don't start writing names in boxes, sort of thing. So and so, and also not to judge cultures because it's a deeply relative thing. Radical candor gets gets measured not at the speaker's mouth, but at the listener's ear. Mm-hmm. And so the way to use this framework is really not to judge yourself, others, or other cultures, but to. Although I kind of just did that, didn't I? <laughs> sort of hypocritically. Yeah, perhaps you um, explained some other cultures. Yes. Well. I, no, I mean, I, I think really the way to use the framework is to guide yourself and your conversations and to help keep yourself moving in the right direction. Because what it's really about is helping everybody do better work. Yes. While being well suited. And one of the things you talk about is the relationship between doing great work and being well suited for the work that you're given. Yes. 
Absolutely. So important. I think that very often managers tend to write their own ambitions onto their people. And one of the biggest mistakes that I see managers make is either to assume that the people who work for them must be ambitious in the same way they are. Either So in other words, if a super ambitious uh, manager might underestimate the value that the people on the team who are doing great work but not necessarily craving the, the big next role in their lives mm-hmm. – um, or the, the managers who, who themselves are not necessarily gunning for the next big role might start to clip the wings of the employees who, who are. So I think it's really important to make sure that you understand what kind of growth trajectory each person on your team wants to be on and to, to work hard to accommodate that. So I think it sounds like part of it is expanding your notion of – what is um, okay for other people to be pursuing and to get rid of the idea that the best employees are the ones who are on a linear path that is upwards and um, pre-designed. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think there are different, you've got got to figure out what the right ratio of, there's a notion in the book of you have people who are in superstar mode, and those are the people who want to grow really quickly. Those are the source of growth on your team. And then there's also people who are in rock star mode, rock as in rock of Gibraltar or solid mm-hmm. as a rock, not as in Ozzy Osbourne. And, and those people who are in rock star mode are the source of stability on your team, and they're not necessarily craving the next big job. And it's so important to have the right balance of each on your team and not to, not to assume everybody has to be like you in terms of ambition. You need to really rethink ambition and, and understand what you need and what the people on your team really want. You also brought another dimension to this that I thought was beautifully put, and it really spoke to me personally, which is that um, at different phases of our lives, our ambitions change. Yes. And that coming back to this idea of we're whole people and we want to bring our whole selves to work, that there are times in our lives where we are focused exclusively on our careers, Mm -hmm. some of us. And then there are times where we may be parenting, dealing with a sick family member, um, pursuing a side project, becoming an Iron Man, all kinds of things. Writing writing great poetry. (laughs) One of my my favorite stories is T.S. Eliot, before he was able to make a living as a Nobel Prize winning uh, poet, he, he worked at Lloyd's of London. And there's this famous, this same, well, I, don't, I guess it's not that famous, but I found it very interesting anyway, this quote from his boss at, at Lloyd's of London who said, I see no reason why in time, in time, mind you, Elliot mightn't be an assistant branch manager. And, of course, C.S. <laughs> Elliot didn't care a hoot about being assistant branch, but it didn't mean he wasn't great at his job. So if his, if his boss had wanted to keep him engaged, the best thing he could have done is let him leave an hour earlier and give him some extra time to write his poetry. Right, because the reality is that beyond 
um, work-life integration and that we care about as individuals right. and that we want the people who work for us to be happy. This also has a direct benefit for the organization in making sure that people are well-suited for their work at this stage of their lives and yes. that they're going to be motivated and satisfied by it. Yes. I also think it's so important to realize as a boss that your job is to understand what motivates the people on your team, not to sort of provide purpose, right? Because, <laughs> right. because then you wind up sounding like the CEO of Hooli, you know, with some sort of spouting BS. It's also, this goes back to what you were saying, by whose ambition are we talking about? Yes. And that um, furthering the ambition of the people on your team, like you said, starts with listening to them and understanding them. Or let me reverse that. It starts with understanding them. How do you go about really understanding the people you work with? It's really an important question because I think far too often people believe that what they have to do to really understand people is destroy their work-life balance and do a lot of (laughs) after-work schmoozing. And you don't have to do that. I think one of the most effective and simple techniques I've ever seen is something that was developed by Russ Laraway, my co-founder. He developed this series of career conversations that he taught every manager who worked with him to have. And the first career conversation that Russ suggested that people have is really just a get-to-know-you conversation. So once a year, instead of your regular one-on-one, have a conversation that begins something like, starting with kindergarten, tell me about your life right? The life story conversation. Now, of course, you have to be sensitive because there are some people who would rather die than talk to their boss about their childhood. So you don't want to force it if people aren't comfortable with this conversation. But the vast majority of people love to talk about their life. They love (laughs) starting with kindergarten. And when you have the conversation, sort of listen for changes, pivots that the person made in life and ask some questions about why they made those pivots And very often what you'll find is that people, people, when they, when they make a change, they reveal what motivates them. They reveal a a core value that motivates them at work. And and you'll come away from this conversation understanding that, oh, so-and-so is motivated by hard work and adventure and, and constant learning or, or whatever. But it, it, it has... If you, talk, if you just ask somebody to give you abstract terms like what motivates you at work, you're not going to get the same kind of context. It's so easy to miscommunicate with abstractions. So one example that I use in the book is there was, uh, there was somebody who said in, in one of these career conversations that she was motivated or imagine that somebody says, I'm motivated by financial independence. That kind of leaves you with a meh feeling about right. this person. But if you get to that by hearing the following story, the person tells you that when she was 12 years old, her mother went back to work and it put a strain on the family. So they go to New Orleans to to begin to, to sort of try to have fun as a family again. And her father maybe has a couple of milk punches <laughs> and they're, they're walking down Bourbon Street and they pass the strip joint, and the father turns the, this 12-year-old girl's head, so she's looking at the woman on the pole, and he says, see that daughter, see that, see that woman, 
she makes more money in a single night than your mother does in a whole year. Now, all of a sudden, you want, you're rooted. You, there's nothing meh about financial no. independence. And you're, you start to see it in a whole new light because you really listened yeah. and made room for it. Exactly. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. I'm talking with Kim Scott, host of uh, the author of Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. Um, if you'd like to join in the conversation when we get back from the break, you can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics. And today we're focusing particularly on that stay, succeed, and lead part of work. And we're talking about it in the context of radical candor um, and how we can actually use it to be strong, effective, honest, and kind bosses and also happy coworkers. Um, joining us to help us navigate this amazing new terrain is Kim Scott. She's the co-founder and CEO of Candor Incorporated. An author of Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. Kim, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. So before the break, um, you were telling us, um, we were talking about career conversations, mm-hmm. um, something that you learned from Russ, your collaborator and colleague. Um, and you were tell- starting out by telling us the first step is a get to know you, um, yeah. where you ask the people you're working with to tell you their life stories. Exactly. Surprisingly powerful. And when, when when Russ first brought this idea to me, I thought, do you really have to teach people how to have get-to-know-you conversations? But, <laughs> oh, but yeah. It turns out that you do because all too often managers think they're not supposed to do that. They think they're not supposed to talk about anything personal at work. And the truth is you can't bring your whole self to work if you don't, if you don't talk about people's lives. So I think it, it was, you know, and of course there's some gotchas. You've you got to help people remember topics to be avoided and, and, and how, to, how to be sensitive to picking up on the signals when, when someone doesn't want to have the conversation. So it was a great, it was a great training that, that Russ did. And then the second phase, the second phase, is a conversation about somebody's dreams. And this conversation begins with, at the very height of your career, when everything in your life is firing on all cylinders, what does that dream look like? And get people to tell you sort of four or five dreams, not just one. The reason is that almost nobody really knows what they want to do when they grow up. And those of us who do know that confuse the heck out of the rest of us. <laughs> right. so, so let people dream, but let people have a few different dreams. And one of the things you'll get out of that conversation is a better understanding of what are the kinds of skills that people want to develop in order to take a step in the direction of their dreams? What are the kind of projects that you could put them on that would help them develop those skills? Is there, is there training available? Is there, are there conferences they could go to? Is there somebody you could introduce them to? And that is really powerful. That is really powerful to understand what people really want. We talked before the break about understanding what kind of what kind of growth trajectory each person on your team wants to be on 
you'll really get a good sense of that from talking about these dreams with people. Absolutely. So that it's not just a mechanism to honor them, to be generous in spirit, and to help them feel respected. It becomes an actually very, dare I say, useful um, mechanism to help retain people and potentially develop them for roles within the organization or adjacent to the organization that they might not have found their way to otherwise. Exactly, exactly. And then the third conversation that Russ recommends that you have with people is really a career action plan. So this is where you sort of decide who's going to do what by when. Who's going to who's going to introduce I'm going to introduce you to so and so. You're going to take this class. We're going to put you on this project so on and so forth. And so it sounds like these are all preconditions then for creating an environment where somebody can thrive and be moving in the right direction. Yes, absolutely. And not necessarily just in the right direction. Remember, in the direction they want they to go. They think is not right. Not necessarily the direction you <laughs> right. want them to That's go That's critical. In. How yes. does this relate to performance evaluations? It should be very separate from performance evaluations. That's what I thought. Yeah. You shouldn't have, these conversations should not be linked at all, in any way, shape, or form to performance evaluation. This is really about getting to know somebody, what they care about, what they want, and and giving it to them to the maximum extent possible. Help connect the dots for me, because this is, this is all presented under the banner of radical candor. How does this help support radical candor where it's needed within the organization, this way of listening and learning to understand who you work with? Right. So when you think about building a team, showing that you care personally, but also being willing to challenge people directly is even more important vis-a-vis who you're going to promote, what roles you're going to give people, um, then that, what, what projects you're going to put people on, than, than it is with regards to feedback, right? Because these are things that really impact not just people's feelings, but, but their careers, right? So you want to make sure you're doing the right thing by people. So these conversations are really a great way to get to know the people who work for you, to understand what they care about, what motivates them, what their dreams are, to show that you care personally, to create the kind of psychological safety that makes radical candor possible. That's a critical issue. So yes. that radical candor requires psychological safety. Yes, although it doesn't require huge amounts of time. I, I, in the book, I describe an incident on the street of New York that took less time than it took for a light to change. That was sort of the, <laughs> the origin story of radical candor. So you, you don't feel like you have to wait to challenge people until you know them incredibly well. So, so for me, the origin story of radical candor came with a perfect stranger. I, was, I had this puppy, and I loved this puppy, and therefore never had said a crossword to the, to the dog, and it was utterly out of control. Totally <laughs> right. It was straining you. Right, exactly. So I'm walking down the street, the dog's jumping around every which way, jumps into the street, And I pull it out of the way of a rushing cab just before it gets flattened. So I'm standing there now at a red light with my heart in my throat. And this man, a perfect stranger, looks at me and he says, I can see you really love that dog. That's all he has to do to move up on the care personally axis. He doesn't have to have taken me out to lunch or gotten to know (laughs) all the details of my family. He, He just says, I can see you really love that dog. And then he says to me, 
but you're going to kill that dog if you don't teach it to sit. And then he points at the ground with this sort of harsh gesture, and he says, sit. And the dog sat. I had oh my no goodness. idea <laughs> the dog even knew what that meant. And I kind of look at this guy in amazement, and he says to me, it's not mean, it's clear. And the light changed. He walked off and left me with words to live by. So if you're out there listening, stranger on the street of Manhattan, thank you. <laughs> and, and so you really, the, so, the, the seeds of trust get sown in these little moments. As you're, Think about when you're first getting to know somebody. Would you not tell the, do you think it's going to help you build a better relationship and more psychological safety with that person if you don't tell them if their fly is down or they have spinach right. in their teeth? Right. right? <laughs> but it also connects to some other things that you talked about through the book that I paid careful note to because they tapped into things that have always made me a little crazy. Um, when I'm in a real hurry and we have, pa- and I've had those days that you recommend we don't plan for ourselves of back-to-back meetings with no breaks in between. Yeah, you don't have time to go to the bathroom, let alone. Right, and then you're late and tired and physically uncomfortable for the duration, yeah. which does not promote good listening. No. Um, you, also, you talked, though, about the value of the few minutes to say hello. How was your weekend? What's going on with you? Exactly. It was astounding to me when I started in my, in my staff meetings, which were always Monday morning, when I changed, and people were always coming in a little grouchy, a little, you know, it's Monday <laughs> it's morning, Monday. <laughs> very few people's favorite time of the week. And, and so what I did was I started with funny story of the weekend. And people always had a few funny stories, and it just totally changed the tenor of the meeting. And so I think if you take a moment for, to, to establish that human connection at the very beginning of the meeting, rather than being too focused on whatever it is that you have to accomplish, that you're, gonna, you're just going to have a more productive meeting. It, it takes a minute, but you, you save more time than it takes. Just to remember that there's – don't read the room. Like, I hate that expression. But remember that there are people in the room, and look at them in the eye and, and try to understand what, what, what are they bringing into the room with them. Right, and what's going on in their world. Exactly. Um, going back to the way you said the book is a series of short stories – I have to say I loved a lot of the stories, particularly some of the ones you told about being managed by Sheryl Sandberg. I was very lucky. I've had some wonderful, wonderful managers in my life, including Cheryl. Clearly. And you tell some stories about where you, um, in conversation with her, both by the way she observed you and also um, what you shared with her, had to deal with how did you navigate the intersection of your personal things that were going on in real life at home, outside of work, and decisions you had to make in the workplace, particularly around having your kids. Do you mind sharing a couple of those? No, absolutely. I mean, one of my, one of my favorite stories and one of the things I am most deeply grateful to Cheryl for is a time I had just gotten married, and I was, I was 40 almost when I got married. So having kids was sort of <laughs> in, uh, very imminent. It was either going to happen really soon or it wasn't going to happen at all. And so I was trying to figure out, I was managing a team of people in 10 different countries, and I was struggling to figure out how to make this balance work. And I was getting some crazy advice. One person told me 
that I needed to FedEx my husband's free, freeze-dried sperm to the next location. I was like, gosh. How that, romantic. Yeah, that cannot, <laughs> that cannot be the answer here. And so, so I was sort of frazzled and frustrated by this whole thing. And I, and I went into Cheryl's office, and I said, I was ha- what do I do here? And Cheryl said, oh, that's easy. Like, oh, do tell. What's the answer? <laughs> and she said, you can't travel and get pregnant at the same time. I was like, what? Does that mean I have to quit my job? No, of course not, Cheryl said. Just remember that you had been, she, she, she said, you've got to make getting pregnant a priority. It's very important to you. And, she, and there was just a real moment of connection. She said, being a, being a mother is the most gratifying thing in my life. And I don't want you to miss this. I know how important it is to you. And you've got to make this your top priority. But you can still do your job. And then she she reminded me that I had been trying to organize a conference of everyone globally and to come to Mountain View, where, where I was based. And she said, why, why don't we get budget? I think it's time to do that. I think it's time to have that conference here in Mountain View. And that was just such an enormous gift because now I was able to stay home and and I did get pregnant. And and the relief in saying I couldn't couldn't do it all at that particular moment in time and a reminder of what to focus on was just such an enormous gift. But the ability to have that conversation came from the fact that both of you had cultivated an honesty with each other about what's important and how you talk to each other. Yes, exactly. And actually, one of your other, or I took it as one of the origin stories. It wasn't quite the guy with the dog on the street, but it was when you talked about um, when Cheryl was managing you and gave you very quick, very effective feedback that you weren't listening to at first. Yes, exactly. So this was this was very early on and shortly after I had gotten to Google, and I had to give a presentation to Google's founders and CEO about how the AdSense business was doing. And like any normal person, I was a little nervous walking into the room, but luckily the business was on fire. And so when I said how many new customers we had added in the last couple of months, Eric sort of looked at me and he said, what resources do you need to keep going? Do you need more engineers? Do you need more? Do you need more more marketing dollars? What do you need? And so, you know, I kind of felt like the meeting had gone pretty well. <laughs> right. In fact, I felt like a genius. And so I'm, I'm walking out the door, and I'm expecting a high five from Cheryl. And instead, she says, "Why don't you walk back to my office with me?" Again, this is like one of those two-minute conversations. I'm about to get some very important feedback, but at the at the moment, I just felt this sense of dread, like, "Oh no, I screwed something up." I'm sure I'm about to hear what it what it was. And Cheryl began the conversation by by focusing on what had gone well in the meeting and not in a feedback sandwich kind of way, but but in the right way. But of course, all I wanted to hear was what had gone wrong. And eventually she said to me, "You said um a lot in there. Were you aware of it?" And I sort of breathed a huge sigh of relief now because I'm thinking, if that's all I did wrong, it's no big deal. And I, I sort of made a brush-off gesture with my hand. And then Cheryl said, I know a really good speech coach, and Google would pay for it. Would you, would you like an introduction? And I made that brush-off gesture again with my hand. And I said, no, I'm busy. I don't have time to go see a speech coach. 
And Cheryl stopped in her tracks. She looked me right in the eye, and she said, I can see when you make that gesture with your hand that I'm going to have to be a lot more direct with you. When you say, um, every third word, it makes you sound stupid. Now, she has my full attention, right? <laughs> right. And, and, and sometimes when people hear the story, they think it was mean of Cheryl to say it that way. But in fact, it was the kindest thing she could possibly have done for me in my career at that moment. And if I had been a different kind of person, she wouldn't have had to say it that directly. And she wouldn't, in fact, have said it that directly. And she tried not to. She tried not to, but she could see. Again, she, she gave the feedback in person. In a quick conversation, not a big deal conversation, but she could see how I was reacting. So she knew that she that she really was going to have to go further probably than she was comfortable going out on the challenge directly uh, dimension of radical candor. Did you then get the coach? And I did get the coach. And are you glad? So glad. <laughs> and the reason why it was the kindest thing she could have, she wasn't exaggerating. I really did say um, every third word. And the weird thing about that was that I had given a lot of presentations in my career. I had raised $35 million giving presentations, and nobody had ever told me about it. It was as though I had gone through my whole career with a giant hunk of spinach in between my teeth, and nobody had told me. Right, or an open fly. Right, right. Right. This is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Kim Scott, co-founder and CEO of Candor Incorporated and author of Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. If you'd like to join in the conversation, you can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, you know, that story with Cheryl, to me, embodies what radical candor is about, how it builds on a foundation of mutual respect and discourse, mm-hmm. of good listening, and but a commitment to expressing what needs to be said. Yes. Now I, I want to ask you about a story that I think falls into a different quadrant, possibly <laughs> a different chart altogether. <laughs> and that was when somebody decided to talk to you about not being likable. Yes. Yes. So, so I, at one point in my career, was, was summoned into my, my boss's office, and he said to me, you know, are you familiar with the competence likability literature? And actually, this was before Cheryl had written Lean In, so I wasn't, in fact, at that point in my career. And for our listeners, could you just briefly explain what it is? Sure. So the competence likability literature basically shows that that the more competent a woman is, the more likely people are to find her unlikable. Right. (laughs) And very painful, right? I mean, nobody wants to be unlikable. Right. And yet we want to really be competent. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So, so, so you're sort of put in a double bind as a woman. And the, 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 the classic story of this is there's an, an HBS case written about Heidi Roizen and there were there were there were two business school professors who decided that they would do an experiment with a class and one class would get the story of Heidi Roizen and the other class would get the story of Howard Roizen you know and sure enough Howard's a great guy and and Heidi's a real you right. know right we love Howard's strength and yeah. we can't stand Heidi yeah exactly so painful 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 and when he explains this to me i sort of it was like 
you know, I, I, I understood something I had never understood before, and I had this moment, this surge of gratitude to him because I thought he understood something that I myself didn't understand, and I thought he was going to somehow try to fix the problem and create a more just working environment. And instead, he said, so could you just try to be more likable, please? <laughs> I was, I really, I, did, I probably didn't have a very likable response. In that. <laughs> I wouldn't either. <laughs> you. Um, and, you know, luckily, I was at a point in my career where it was easy for me to get another job. Well, was that all he did was tell you to be likable? Or they, did he have a solution for how to help address the environment? No. Okay. No, just no, that. He just, he just wanted me to try to be more likable. And, th- I mean, actually, I didn't write the whole story in the book. It got worse. He also wanted me to buy tighter jeans. Oh, you're kidding uh, no, me. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> so I quit, and, you know. <laughs> Rightfully so. It also it comes back to two things that you do talk about in the book, which is when we're giving feedback, um, we need to make it specific, and we need to make it actionable. Yes, yes. And he did. Not actually. to mention mired in bias and yeah. a level of superficiality that's useless. Yeah. Well, in tight hurtful. jeans to the woman who, you know, oh had what God. to hide. Uh, we'll put it that way. <laughs> did he really tell you to buy tighter jeans? Not only that, went out and bought them. Oh, my God. And then a couple of, uh, and then he, and then he called me back at his office a, a while later and he said, he told me, I hadn't quite quit yet. Shockingly, I should have already quit by then. And he said he had a, a solution to the problem. And when you asked solution, I thought you meant a real solution. So his suggested solution, which I describe in the book, was a demotion for me, thinking that people would find me more likable if I were less powerful. Oh, my God. So yeah. he, his answer was, let's um, blame you for not being liked, yeah. sexualize you further and demote you, and that if we make you a sex object and less powerful, then you'll be liked. Then I'll be more likable, yeah. And he was probably right about that. <laughs> oh, God. It was not the right solution. <laughs> Clearly not. <laughs> so when you have these kinds of experiences with somebody that you report to, Mm-hmm. And you now, as the employee, need to address an, a, prob- a problem mm-hmm. where the radical candor needs to go up the food chain, not yeah. down the food chain. What advice do you have? So uh, the, first, the first advice I have is to solicit feedback. And I did do that with, with this boss. And, and the feedback that, I, that came at me was, was uh, you know, there's a time and a place to reject that feedback. And I found... I found that that this case was was that time, but but more often than not, the the reason you're going to have a better outcome than I did in this case, which you you, you probably won't have to quit. The, the reason <laughs> the reason to solicit the feedback is because you want to understand where your boss is coming from, and you also I think very often we tend to have this attitude towards authority figures like they're tyrants to be toppled. And that's not a very good approach to go into a conversation sort of caring personally about someone. It's just important for you to care personally about your boss as it is for your boss to care personally about you. We're all human beings and, and imperfect ones. And in this together. Yes, exactly. So, so go in and solicit feedback first. And this, by the way, this advice holds sort of, I wish I had a less hierarchical, hierarchical way to say it, but up, down, and sideways. Start by soliciting feedback. And soliciting, in particular, criticism. Then focus on giving praise. Focus on the good stuff. 
and finally offer offer the feedback. And and I did in the end with this this tight jeans, the the boss of the tight jeans. I did get I felt that it was my obligation to the other women in the in the organization to explain to him exactly why I found this why I was quitting. On behalf and of great, all of them, thank you. Yes. <laughs> and I did. And you know what? He took it pretty well and and we actually uh you know are still friends, right? So he's not he he did understand, but by the time by the time that I was able to have that conversation with him, I had gotten so angry that 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 the ship had sailed. It was too late to stay. So that's another bit of advice: is don't don't make the mistake I did in that situation, which is to bottle it up and not give the feedback. Because you you do if the more you bottle it up, the more angry you get, and 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 it becomes too late to salvage. Absolutely. And you need to get those things out for both for you and for the organization. Yes. But also it seems like another lesson in this is how as managers you ask people to give you feedback as well. Yes. So important to learn how, especially if you're in a position of some authority, to learn how to solicit feedback. And there are four, there are four things that I think really help. The first thing is to come up with a question that you feel comfortable asking. So for me, the question that, that I always like to ask, and not always is the wrong word because you can't ask, go around asking this question every day, but, but that I would ask periodically was, is there anything I could do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? Now, if those words don't fall trippingly off your tongue, come up with something but that does. do it uh, in your own language. Exactly. So I hate to do this because I could talk to you all day, Kim. This is fascinating. But we are unfortunately running out of time. So if people want to find out what the other three points are, where can they find your book? They can find my book at their local bookstore, local independent bookstore. They can find it at Barnes & Noble. They can find it on Amazon. All the places where you usually buy the books you love is where Radical Candor is. Fantastic. Kim, thanks so much for joining us. It's Radical Candor. Be a kick-ass boss without losing your humanity. Thank you all so much for joining us. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111. Special thanks to Kim Scott, to Patty, Tatiana, Danielle, Allie, and Dana. And Joe, get better soon. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on SiriusXM 111. Oh,